Hey, .NET Rocks fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. .NET Rocks episode 959 with guests Amber Rosa and Alicia Hatter. Recorded live Tuesday, February 11th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl. It's Richard. We're here. It's it's amazingly warm in the Northeast. Yeah. So I want to be cheerful today, but we're recording this on February 11th. Yeah. And this is the third anniversary of the the earthquake and tsunami in in Japan. Yeah. And coincidentally, the Thursday show of this week's show, this is show is going to be published on March 18th, mm-hmm. Welcome to Time Shifting, and our, our March 20th show, the Thursday show, is the one on nuclear accidents where we do talk about Fukushima. Right. So it just happens to be that it's exactly three years ago today. And on an up note, uh, I'm taking the band to Austin, Texas to yes. play. At the Red Gorilla Festival, which happens... South by Southwest action. Yeah, it happens alongside South by Southwest. And the, the idea is that, you know, the the official South by Southwest festival has gotten sort of major label-ish and yeah. gotten away from its roots as an indie music thing. So, Red Gorilla is just one of the festivals that happens, and it happens on 6th Street. And all the all these great bands come, and a lot of bands that you've never heard before. So, uh, we're playing there. And I, I was just there for the South by Southwest interactive part. Right. And, you know, you're, you, you are right. It has become big business now. Yeah. All the big labels, all the big companies around uh, technology are there. Yep. It's not as the same startup culture that it was. Right, right. All right. Well, anyway, we're going to start things off uh, on a happier note, too. I got a joke for you. So Hit roll it. the music. Okay, so this is a better know a framework with a joke? Yeah. Okay. And in, you know, in lieu of our guests, I hope they have good senses of humor. You know, this is w- this was sent to me by a tester friend of mine. Uh-oh. Yeah. So, uh, a minister, a doctor, and a software tester are waiting one morning for a particularly pokey group of golfers. And the, the tester is really mad. He says, what's with those guys? We've been waiting here for 15 minutes. Doctor says, I, I don't know, but I've never seen such bad golf playing. So, right then, the greenkeeper comes up, and the minister says to him, Hey, Bob, what's up with those guys ahead of us? They're so slow. Greenkeeper says, Ah, that's a group of blind firemen. They lost their sight, saving our clubhouse from a fire last year, so we let him play for free anytime. And everybody just goes silent for a moment. Finally, the minister says, Ah, oh, that's sad. I, you know, I think I'll go home and say a special prayer for them tonight. Doctor says, good idea. I'll, I'll contact my ophthalmologist group to see if there's anything we can do for him. And the software tester says, why can't they just play at night? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Practical. Practical. Yeah. Very practical. Exactly. That's all I got, Richard. That's good enough for me. All right. Who's talking to us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 912, 912, and that is the one we did on mob programming way back when. Yeah. With Woody Zool and all the fun guys. Love those guys. And this comment comes from Preets, who says, so we could chatter all day and get work done, and they still have no women on their team? Mm. Something is not right here. Hmm. I couldn't help but think about all the talk you guys did a few weeks ago on the Women in Technology panel, and I wonder if the mob environment, she puts mob in quotes, 
that, and I air quoted on the show. I just want you to know that. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if the mob programming environment is way more social than the cubicle model will make the field more appealing. Hmm. Which I, I buy into that idea because in the end, the funny part is even when we have cubes, we end up huddling in our cubes to talk. Is this the best way to solve problems? Well, it certainly makes the teams tighter. You know, I don't know about social on the, in the broad scale of things, but certainly within the team makes them closer, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. But coming back to the topic, though the guys did not recommend mob programming for the masses, which I understand, I could definitely see it being very helpful if applied on a smaller scale. Not every line of code needs to be the mob effort, but one can definitely come together to put together generic pieces like data layers, error handling frameworks, security, master layouts, just to name a few. Utility classes would be another great candidate because I've seen the wheel reinvented on the same application so many times. Mm. Now, now you're thinking about even if you don't want to go mob all the time, but to have regular gatherings for more than just code review, like what Preet's talking about there is integration points. Mm-hmm. Like maybe it's the time when we put software together or making major framework decisions like at the early architecture point too. We all end up together anyway, just formalize that a little more. Mm-hmm. And she goes on to say, I love the idea. I'd love to see it get popular. Great show, guys. Very cool. So, Preet, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They're still releasing over 40 new courses a month and offering a 10-day trial for free, 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, everything web, and pretty much everything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including over 20 courses on software practices and planning. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. That brings us to our guests. Amber DeRosa is a senior usability engineer, and Alicia Hatter is a usability manager and practitioner at the Vanguard Group's corporate headquarters. Amber received a master's degree in information science and technology with a focus in HCI from Drexel University's iSchool in 2004. Since graduating, Amber was the founding vice chair of Philly CHI, a local chapter of the ACM SIG CHI. She remains an active member of Philadelphia's UX community. Alicia is a Southeast native. In 2011, she graduated from Clemson University's Communication and Information Design PhD program with a focus in usability. Before Vanguard, Alicia taught college-level courses in composition, business, and technical communication and public speaking. Welcome, Amber and Alicia. Thank you. Thanks. So great to have you on our show. We're excited. Very, very excited to have you. And usability engineer, I'm it's very um, awesome to me that anybody has that title. And I want to talk to a usability engineer almost every day as a software developer. How, how do we find usability engineers and what does a usability engineer do, actually? So uh, usability engineer is typically um, the client's voice on any project team. So Alicia and I work uh, very closely with developers and project team members and the business people. And uh, in, in working in those teams, we represent the client. And the way that we learn about the client is uh, through observation and interviewing techniques and watching the client use our uh, websites or mobile apps. And then we take those uh, findings and we take them back to the project teams, and we make recommendations on how they can make uh, their products and apps better for the end client. And this is everything, not just n- not just user interface details, but uh, everything from from big grand ideas down to minutia. D- is, is that correct? That's totally right. So we can help designers and business people at any phase in the process from you have no design, no code, you just have an idea, and you want to sort of concept test that with actual users, all the way down to your product is live. We can do validation testing on it with actual users, and then kind of anything in between. So a lot of people think that usability testing is only with 
you know, live products or products that are in prototype stage, like functional prototypes. But we actually do a lot more conceptual work, um, you know, that builds on psychology and ethnographic principles and observation, like Amber pointed out, than I think a lot of people realize. Pretty cool job. Yeah. Do you see yourselves as sort of translators between the business people and the developers? I mean, that's a classic uh, breakdown in communication that we've been talking about for years on this show. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a lot of, um, you know, communication. Um, many times if you're developing something or you're a business expert on something, you may design that thing the way that you would want it to work and not necessarily always understand that everyone's not like you and that you really need to design it for the client or whoever the end user is that's going to be using your product. You know, it sounds to me like some of this work is uh, the stuff that project managers usually do. We work with project managers. Um, I, I sort of see project managers as the great herder of cats. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, where they actually, you know, they're, they're in the, the scrums, you know, with the IT folks in the mornings or the afternoons. And then they're the ones who sort of come to us and say, Hey, listen, might be a good time for a test. Here are a set of capabilities that we might be looking at. And then they'll work to, you know, develop the prototype that we end up testing. Um, and we'll just sort of do the testing piece. But back to your earlier point, like, when we do our readouts and our recommendation reports at the end of testing, that really is when we become the liaison between the end user, the business, and IT. Because sometimes, you know, we do have tough messages to communicate, like Amber was saying. Like, hey, you guys thought this, you know, feature or capability was going to be awesome, but overall everyone didn't get it, you know. Right. And yeah. we have to... It, the sort of onus is on us to figure out a way to communicate that in a language that resonates with the business and in a very different way that, that resonates with IT. Boy, so a lot of what we do is around communication. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've had that experience so many times where explaining something is crystal clear to me as, as a developer, and, and I'm thinking that I'm explaining it clearly to the client in their language you know, in in a crystal clear English language, and yet you see the eyes glaze over, and, and you can't <laughs> understand because you think that you're explaining it in in their terms, and they have no idea what you're saying. I have a really great example of that where um, our design team was designing a screen that uh, they basically had a summary level screen, and they wanted. Uh, a link that people had to click for more details. And we designed a number of different things and we tested them and clients just weren't seeing that detailed link. So they created this huge red bar at the bottom of the screen and they were like, there's no way that these clients are not going to see this big red bar that says, click here for more details. And, um, you know, at the end of my study, I, I did about eight people and Seven of them did not click on the big red bar to <laughs> click for more details. And I really, I had to create a video clip of that, just people staring at the screen, you know, not noticing the probably the largest feature on the entire page, yet they weren't even looking there. Because it was at the bottom and it was way out of their field of vision, right? No, I mean, the, the page was not scrollable. It was, it was all above the fold, and it was visible, clearly. Um, they were just looking at their balances, and they were looking at their numbers, and uh, they just overlooked it. Yeah, I, I've been watching this awesome show on National Geographic called Brain Games. Have you seen this? Yeah, I heard of it. And there was a, a, an experiment they did that they recreated this uh, thing that had been done with a video with the same group and Billy Hollis showed this video Richard where the, these basketball players were you know basically you you ask the audience to watch this video and count how many times the white team dribbles the ball right and while the white team and the black team are playing basketball and the, you're counting the dribbles a gorilla walks through the frame waves at you <laughs> and 
and nobody in the audience noticed it. Basically, less than half of the people noticed the gorilla. And it's just a, a brain trick that when somebody's hyper-focused on something, in this case, you know, the fields on the screen or whatever, they tend to block out everything else. Yeah. That's a really great connection. And, and there are so many times when we feel like things are so obvious, and yet you put it in front of a real person, i.e., you know, not a tech nerd like any of us are, mm. and you'd just be amazed what normal humans just fail to see. <laughs> so in designing screens and things, that just is a, a wake-up call to single single task and single focus and consistency in terms of where to put, you know, your 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 continue buttons and your links and that kind of thing and not overwhelm people. Yeah, so true. And Amber and I get on this bandwagon all the time where we say, especially with, you know, mobile design, responsive design, these conventions that are just now emerging, we have to keep reminding people that they're really not conventional. And so, you know, Amber and I have talked in the past about the hamburger icon, the, yep. the three-line icon menu button yep. that you're seeing a lot in apps and stuff. Like, so many people don't know what that is or what it does or even that it's there. And yet, you know, people are starting to implement it. So there's this danger there, right, that we start thinking that something is understandable and visible when, in fact, you put it in front of users and it's not. Yeah, so just because Facebook or these other large industry and even, you know, smaller websites now are using it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work for your audience. So it's really important that you make sure that your audience sees your designs rather than, you know, assuming that the Facebook audience is going to be similar to people uh, who you are designing for. So how do you guys capture this data? Is it is it literally just a video camera in a room? Well, it depends on what technique we use. Um, for typical usability testing where you're in a lab, you're sitting down next to the client, perhaps there's a one-way mirror with observers on the other side of the glass, it really is just your notes. Those are typical qualitative interviews with smaller sample sizes. So we might do 8 to 15 clients depending on how many segments we need to look into. Um, but that's really qualitative, and then we uh, bubble those up at a later point. Uh, so that's one technique that we can use. We do have, like, there's usability testing software called Moray, you know, that can capture things like clicks, number of clicks. It can capture keystrokes. Uh, you can load surveys into it so that if you finish a task, uh, you know, a survey question pops on the screen and then the, on the back end, the software will sort of tabulate all that for you and output graphs and whatnot. Um, that's not horribly useful for, you know, a small sample size. Right. But, you know, we have that kind of thing when we do run studies with more people. Yeah, and I'm always worried that, that the testing environment colors the tests as well. Yeah, and it's an age-old situation, right? Act natural, forget about the one-way mirror. <laughs> so... What about the double-blind test where the, the tester and the, the tested neither, you know, it can, is it possible to do any kind of usability testing with, you know, and, and do a kind of double-blind test, or is that only limited to when you're giving choices? I mean, you start to get into data analytics at that point, and, you know, we are certainly tied heavily to the analytics team, and we know things about traffic and um, you know, we certainly have access to those types of uh, resources, but, um, you know, it's, it's kind of at least at our company a separate uh, department that does a lot of that. So we're just absorbing the data that they're collecting. Yeah, it's pretty hard to bring in somebody face-to-face -face and have them not know that this is Vanguard running the study. Right, yeah. You know? Um, and, and plus, like, you know, being Vanguard, there's a lot of, you know, legal things that we have to go through in yeah, order to... Yeah, you can just, you know, hack somebody's webcam, unless you're the NSA or something. <laughs> they know how to do it. But I think the, the bigger issue here is, I mean, you really need to test against actual customers. So this is a non-trivial expense 
for the company as well to uh, to take guys away from their work to to play with the new version of the software? Well, I mean, we we bring in clients and we have them. You know, this is our full time job, so right. you know, Vanguard is is paying us to do this, um, and so we're not really taking anyone else you know, from the company uh, to to help us with the usability testing. We're we're really working with the clients and um, they're volunteering and we do, you know, compensate them for their time. Right. Well, I guess it depends on the kind of app. If it's an internal application, you have to sort of test with the people who are actually going to use it. But if it's a like a, a an app that you're going to put out into the wild, then you just need the guy off the street who might be interested. Yeah, we we wish we could work that agilely. <laughs> <laughs> agilely, I guess. Well, I guess I mean, I think this is an important part of the equation: is how do you test the right people to get the best possible feedback? Yeah, so we work really closely with with the business in that case, and the business says these are this is the target user, and here are some demographics around that user type. Right. And then beyond that, we will step in and say, okay, well, how important is tech savviness? How important is mobile usage? How important are these other tech factors? And then we'll create basically a screener that we'll give to a recruiter, and the recruiter will go out and call people. And if people meet the criteria that we've set, then they get to participate in the study. Okay. So it actually kind of is a, a fairly rigorous process. Hmm. But it is an op- this is also very much an open process. This is like an external-facing app. I mean, I don't want to name names here, but I think of apps like uh, the United's mobile app, which I, I reference periodically different shows just because it's on all the platforms. And it's clearly a specific vertical. If you're a United customer, you probably want to use this app. So, but you could literally go out into the wild, out into the public to find people to test that for you. Yeah, you certainly could. Like, I would say in the absence of, you know, processes and rigor, like some of what we have, testing with anybody is probably better than testing with no one. Right. But anybody being not a developer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Any any non-technical person. Mm -hmm. Certainly gives you different results, unless, of course, you're designing something for a technical audience. But, um, I mean, it's hard, right? Because even with our, you know, screening process and whatnot, we will get some total crazies in our studies, (laughs) you know, or or people that are just not who we thought they were going to be or what they said they were. And it's it's almost a busted session at that point because you know you're you're not with your target user and so how useful are the findings? Right. You know that's what the business would push back on if we were to present those type of results. They would say, but, "Hey, this isn't even our client." You know, that's why only do we care one crazy, right? Like, hopefully, you have a big enough sample size that you can can cut out the oddball data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it happens. Not that often, but it does right. happen. Yeah, sure. No, I'm I'm with you. We, we every so often, it, every so often, you just get an oddball or you get someone who's got an axe to grind, and it's going to skew the data. Yeah, and um, you know, it's always those sessions that you certainly utilize your skills uh, as as the type of people that we are as usability engineers, and making sure that um, you know we are still polite and. Um, you know, open to feedback while trying to, um, you know, protect ourselves from any insults or aggression that we may receive. Wow. Uh, wow, indeed. There's a very diplomatic you know, statement about okay. obviously an interesting day. You can't just leave that out without going into the story now. Come on. Let's hear it. Alicia has some good stories, but I mean, we get drunks and flirts and angry people. And I mean, it doesn't happen often, but it certainly occurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when, when you, when you get somebody calling you up that says, Hey, do you want to participate in a research study and we'll pay you X amount of money? You know, then there's probably a lot of incentive for people, some people to fake their way into the test. And then once they're here, you just sort of don't know what you're going to get. But I had actually a, an overly honest gentleman. I, I was just running a study in London last week, and he was like 
our perfect target guy. And one of the things we always say at the beginning of the test is, hey, listen, we want your honest feedback. Like, we want to know now if certain things aren't working, whatever. And this guy just really took that to, like, the nth degree. Like, there was this one question where I said, you know, what's your overall impression of this page? And he just went off. He was like, this site looks like it was designed by a 10-year-old in a basement, and it's not even a WordPress theme, you know. And and meanwhile, all the the designers are are on the phone listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) Was he a WordPress snob? (laughs) I don't know. I couldn't tell. He He just had these, like, very specific opinions. Because they're, you know, those those guys are the worst. And I, you know, no offense to our WordPress friends out there, but you know, the people who've discovered WordPress and that they can make money at it without programming, and you know, they think that WordPress can solve the world's problems. Uh, there was even a um, a comment by someone who thought that uh, healthcare.gov should should have been done in WordPress. So I guess it runs the gamut. Yeah. And then. And then you know, since we are a financial services company, many people are certainly concerned about us being legitimate uh, as far as research, you know, so they might, you know, try and call ahead to make sure that, you know, this is an actual research uh, facility and, and, you know, that we are actually from who we say we are. Yeah, I guess that's a whole other angle when you're going out to the public like that is, are you a scam? Yeah, exactly. In some ways, it's almost like rather than offering money, like the money is a, is part of the problem rather than actually part of the solution. Yeah, you you could see it that way. You know, it's like, well, what's worse, paying people, you know, because at some level we do want, you know, some high value people to come through here like financial advisors or people who sponsor large 401k plans and they're not just going to come for free. And so, they're they're not going to come for $20 either. They're not going to come for $20 either. You're yeah. right. Yeah, so, interesting. I mean, we don't pay that much. Right. Yeah, there's there's definitely like FINRA guidelines around what we can pay financial professionals and what we're like willing to pay clients off the street. Yeah, you'd almost think it made more sense to focus on, if you're focusing on a vertical like that, it's more like a, a gift that would only be valued by that vertical. You know, where the price is not necessarily the focus here. It's something that would matter to someone who's actually in that space and really wouldn't matter to anybody outside of it. You know, a lot of people come because they're interested. Right. And it's not even about the check. Um, yeah. You know, mm. I do all the mobile apps and, you know, people come and when, when they're done, they're like, wow, I didn't know you had that feature. Or, you know, I, I really learned something today. I'm, I'm really glad that I came out. So, um yeah, it's a good point because, like, when we work with internal Vanguard people, we can't pay them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we try to sell it like, hey, you're going to be on the cutting edge of this. You're going to see it before everybody else. You know, your feedback will potentially show up in the final design. You can tell your friends, like, hey, I tested that. You know, it's made better because I gave my, you know, feedback. So that gets a couple people, you know, excited. Yeah, and, and, and I buy into that. The people want to have influence. Mm-hmm. Sure. I've also, you know, when you're dealing with an internal application, I mean, every so often you find a personality just well suited to that kind of testing. Like they're very particular and detail oriented and they pick up on a lot of things and can think abstractly. It's, it's not a normal behavior for a lot of folks. Yeah, you're right. Some people do find it um, somewhat awkward to be in the quote testing situation, but other people, it, it, like you said, it comes naturally. And I personally, like, I'll keep those people in my back pocket for the next go around. You know, if they were particularly helpful and, you know, everyone generally agreed that their feedback was right on, we'll go back to them. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. Guess what time it is? Uh, I must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to cryptographically obfuscate this show, which is otherwise cleanly engineered for ultimate usability. Wow. You like that, huh? That's like seven buzzwords at eight. I know. Well, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before we tell you who the winner is, let me tell you about the Telerik platform. This is the only modular platform that combines a rich set of UI tools with powerful cloud services to develop web, hybrid, and native apps. You can develop in the browser, on your desktop, or using Visual Studio 
using a variety of language technologies. .NET, Java, HTML5, JavaScript, and PHP. Check it out at Telerik.com slash platform. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner from the city of Nagua in the Dominican Republic is Ramon Garcia Perez. Congratulations, Ramon. Golf clap for you, sir. There he is. A round of applause for Ramon. He just won the Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. That's everything they do in one box, just about. It's a $2,000 value. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. We give away stuff in every show, and every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. And we always ask our guests, Amber, Alicia, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, it doesn't have to be development technology. It could be photography. could be... 3D printers could be anything. What would you buy? I would buy, I think I would buy a robot, but I would also need a developer to program my robot for me. Although <laughs> I do love robots, and I, I'm more interested in them from the human-robot interaction perspective than the technology perspective. Hmm. So maybe one day I'll uh, leave my HCI career and uh, move over to HRI. But hmm. So when you mean robot, you mean like a humanoid, like a Conda's Osmo or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Something that can bring you coffee? Perhaps. Yeah. It's just the interaction piece. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it's only the Japanese that are getting crazy with trying to make them more and more lifelike. Yeah. So they're very creepy. I'm perfectly happy letting everybody know my robot's a robot. It's just how well does he interact with the human? My wife wants me to build her one that uh, brings her coffee. <laughs> You know, that's my job from now until the day we die. Well, I don't I don't drink coffee, so um but you know, there is a lot of articles and research around, you know, how um uh close to humans you've designed your robot and there's there's a lot more expectations of the robots the more human like they become. So it's really better currently to design your robot to be uh less humanoid at the current point in time until the capabilities of the robot catch up to um, having them look like us. Yeah, I don't know that looking like us is ever going to be an asset. Being able to work in our environment is useful, and being able to interact efficiently is useful. Yeah. All right, weird stuff. Well, Alicia? Oh, I don't know. I I got nothing on that $5,000 question (laughs) other than basic things like, hey, I should upgrade my TV. And, you know, my MacBook Pro is getting a little long in the tooth. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Yep, fundamentals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the two times we have given away this package, which we do in December, we have built development custom development systems for the winners. That's what they've actually wanted. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it's super fun for us to, you know, when you spend five grand on a computer, you build a pretty mean computer. Yeah, I imagine it would have all kinds of bells and whistles. Yep, definitely. All right, let's jump back into this because I think for a lot of listeners, I don't know they have an opportunity to have a usability engineer on their team. Mm. Are the things they can do to sort of get some of the magic that you guys bring to the software into their systems? I, w- I was going to ask the same thing, Richard. If we could implement some of these things in our in our gathering, you know, requirements gathering processes, it would sure solve a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, I think that getting in front of anyone is certainly important. So I have a developer friend, um, you know, he he builds for mobile devices. He'll go to the Verizon store and test out his website and, you know, ask, ask some people to interact with it. Um, you know, there's always the mom or parent or grandma test, you know, have some relative that you know or friend that you know is completely uh, less savvy than yourself and have them go through the different tasks that would be typical tasks of that website and see if they can accomplish it. The other thing, too, like you guys were sort of mentioning magic, um, there is sort of art plus science to what we do. Um, and so I, I guess I'd mention that if you are going to go out to the public and interface with them, that there are some basic things that you should probably be aware of, like, you know, techniques for building rapport with people, making them feel comfortable, 
you know, one of the things we always say to people before we start is this is not a test of you because you would be amazed how many people will do something on an interface and it'll be the, quote, wrong thing. And they'll say, oh, man, I'm, I'm stupid. I'm probably the only one that did that. Meanwhile, you know, we're sitting there like, no, actually, that's been a trend. Most people yeah. don't seem to get that. But they blame themselves. And so you have to, you know, make them feel like, listen, we're just testing the interface. It's not you. And then there's other things, too. Like, if you really want to get great feedback from people, don't ask yes, no questions. Right. Ask open-ended questions, you know. Let people open up. Be quiet kind of thing. So that's, that's the art to what we do. And, and the more people that, that understand those, like, I guess, softer skills, then you really can. You're sort of off and running to getting some great feedback. Yeah, more about listening, less about teaching. Yes. Very important. Yeah, actually, teaching would be very bad in, in the test if you had to yeah, sort of Yeah, kind of colors <laughs> everything. But, and I think right? it's really important to say you are, the, to the, the person you brought in, you're the tester, not the testee. The software is the testee. Exactly. Can you tell us any stories about uh, a project where every everybody thought it was going to be great, and then you brought it and put it in front of people, and uh, everything went downstairs. Everything went the other way. Um, yeah, we have a not a ton of those, but I have, I'm sure we have our fair share. Um, I was mentioning that I was in in London last week, and one of the things that we were testing was. Uh, a responsive data table. So this idea of having, you know, almost like 20 columns, horizontal columns of data. And on the large screen, we didn't want um, this, like, I guess, horizontal scrolling um, on the desktop because that's, like, so 1990s, like, frames. So we had this um, other design that lets people get to the data, the columns in the table that they couldn't see. And it was kind of like Amber was talking about before. It was a giant red button that said, click here for price and performance information. I mean, giant, top right of the screen. And every single person in the study was like, where do I go for price and performance information? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like I asked, where would you go for price and performance information? And they're scanning around the screen, scrolling up and down. And luckily... You know, because there's, there's no substitute for this on the business side. People are watching, and they right. saw firsthand the user's struggle with mm -hmm. this task. Mm -hmm. And that opened their eyes, right? Because it wasn't me telling them. It was them seeing it for themselves. Mm -hmm. That's why we do video clips, right? There's, there's no substitute for, some, for seeing your own design fail miserably. Yeah, right. <laughs> Evidence. Yeah. Well, especially evident, the, the video right. of that person's confusion on their face, you yeah. know, just that moment of, of being lost. Yeah. And, and it was surprising, you know, even for me, like I thought, well, this, this kind of has a chance of success just because it's so big and so red. Um, it was kind of an unconventional way of navigating, but still it had a chance. So even I was surprised. Well, it makes me wonder how much... The average user that knows their way around a browser today does not see anything on the right side of the screen because it's always advertising. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. They're just blind. They don't look there. Their brain is edited out. Hey, Richard. Yeah, but I think we ought to switch the ads to the left side of the screen on .NET Rocks. What do you think? Something. Something. <laughs> I'm thinking something. No. No. <laughs> Would you... Would you guys like a usability review? Sure. Maybe that's what we need. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what about automating some of this? Stuff like eye trackers and heat mapping. Like, Can we build this into our app so that it's a, it's a routine part of using it? I mean, there are some tools in apps that you can put into your SDK. Um, I've evaluated a number of them, and I haven't found one that really works uh, with the needs that we would have, um, but it's certainly, there are tools out there and there are certainly options, but that gets more around your data analytics, again, rather than, you know, really usability behavioral testing, because that's only going to tell you what people are doing. Right. It's not going to tell you why they're doing it, and, and really a lot of the qualitative techniques that we have 
are trying to get at why um, it why is this behavior occurring? Right, capturing intent. Mm-hmm. I think that's the t- that's the tougher mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. as opposed to what people actually do. Although I got to imagine both data sets are useful. Oh yes, we certainly use analytics. Yeah, a lot of times, like if if that big red button that I was talking about earlier was in production, I could have used analytics to support the fact that no one in my study saw it. I would right. look for for low, you know, click through rates. Yeah, it's but, you know one percent of users actually clicked that button. That supports the study we did, where people just couldn't find it. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting combination of those two. That it, one doesn't replace the other. You can't just do real time instrumentation, and that's your usability study either. Exactly. But still, I, th- I just the focus group thing seems so elaborate. How can we make that lighter? Is there is do we just go in and watch somebody? What about just standing over the shoulder of someone using the app and watch them go? Um, so I guess usability sessions are typically one on one versus mm-hmm. focus groups, which are group sessions. Um, and we do sometimes do both group, uh, focus groups are usually, um, done earlier, um, kind of looking through some concepts. Usability testing is done one-on-one so we can really see the intricate, um, ways that people are interacting with the system rather than, you know, kind of conceptually how they think about something. Right. And, and too, like it doesn't have to be so, you know, I guess, formalized, like, come into a lab and sign a consent form and, you know, (laughs) interact with this screen with more software running behind it to capture your click rates. Like, we can show people a piece of paper that's pasted on top of a phone and say, what do you think about if this was your mobile home screen? You know, so we can do lo-fi, hi-fi, anything in between. And that's probably where, I guess, people non-usability engineers would would come in, right? Sketch something out on a piece of paper, you know, put it in the context of a phone, take a picture of it, show it in in the, you know, camera of the phone and say, hey, if this was the screen, what would you do? Do you think it's also valuable to get opinions of people who are experienced with phones and browsers and have, you know, have used them for a while? Yeah, we, we typically do recruit for people who've used their phone for more than three months. Um, I'm doing a mobile study this week, and most everybody in my study has uh, used their phone for, you know, more than a year or up to three years. The difference is they're not developers. Yeah, because developers want to fix your problems for you, right? Right, Although, (laughs) although they are, you know, people who are using their phones, you know, they're regular people who aren't thinking about buttons and styles and flows and on a daily basis. So, yeah, we wouldn't, we, we find it tough to get like excellent feedback from people who just use smartphones to like send an email, you know, or do very, very light web browsing. So it is a fine balance between finding people who are, you know, savvy with mobile or even the PC and who are not developers. Yeah, it's a tough mix of, of skills. So this Moray software you use, this is the one from TechSmith? Yeah. So just being able to capture those insights so you can put all that information together. I think that's that's yeah. really interesting to, that there are tools specifically for this. There's a number of other tools as well, you know, for um, Mac or, um, or, or other, you know, just recording software that you can use. You could use iMovie. It really doesn't matter. Uh, what type of recording software? That's just what we happen to use for recording. Right. But having a recording is important. What do you think about the sort of customer feedback tools you can add to your app so that people can write comments or you can even do a capture of a problem, again, sort of automatically, when the customer feels like they're having a problem with the app? So, yeah, so we have some of those um, on the back end of the Vanguard site, and it's actually pretty cool for us because we get, like, daily feeds of what people are saying. And then, you know, at least in some of the, you know, areas, we'll forward them on to business people and be like, hey, is this something that we want to fix? Is this a project here? So, yeah, super useful. Mm, right. I mean, to get people over the threshold of actually sending a comment or, you know, they've got to be a fairly high frustration level at that point. You know, you'd be surprised. 
surprised we get a fair mix of positive and negative. But I guess to your point, it is the the extremes of emotion. Either people really love something or they're really frustrated with something. Right. We, I, I'm wondering how many times you get an event where, or you have an experience where it's literally people are delighted with the software, that it does exactly what it wants, that they really enjoy doing it. It's sort of a best case scenario. Yeah. In fact, we just um, redesigned the financial advisor app for the iPad. And <laughs> for Vanguard, it's pretty slick looking. And so we actually got a lot of um, positive comments that were like, this page looks Awesome. It's so user-friendly. It's great. Nice upgrade. And, it, and it, interesting that it's in the context of a previous user. So it's like they know how bad it can be. Now they can <laughs> see that it's better. Yeah. Although there were some, some newbies, I suppose, who were like, hey, this is awesome. Yeah. Looks better than other financial apps that I've used. I, I just think these days with the tools we've got, delight is an option that we can really wow users with something that's wonderful to use. It's really crazy to me how delight could be an option. Is <laughs> <laughs> that a requirement? Yeah. It's, it, yeah, it just is. Oh, we'll get to that if we have extra budget, you know. I've heard that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. We just want it to work first. Right. I, from our perspective, we would say, you know, why are we doing this? Well, because we want to delight people. We want, you know, to inspire them. We want them to feel a connection with Vanguard and with us. Absolutely. And after the why comes the how. Well, and especially when you're playing with a new idea, you get this idea of a, of a minimal viable product. And you, you hinted at this or you know mentioned piece of this idea that you don't actually have to bring them the app. You can bring them paper representations of the app on a, on a tablet or, or on some kind of, uh, of sample device so they can at least play with it or talk to what they'd like to see. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And then there are even like things that you can download, like app prototyping tools. Um, where you can actually, you know, take a picture of whatever it is you want to show and you can build in hotspots to that picture so it feels like, you know, to an end user that they tap something and something happens on the screen. And that those are really easy to use um, and pretty cheap to pick up. Do you think there's a value in using animations? And uh, by that I don't mean, you know, cartoons. I mean <laughs> a, um, animations to sort of guide flow. Uh, or, yeah, uh, anim animations are very important. I mean, you would be surprised at how they increase usability. Um, you know, if you are working with an animation that that isn't quite working, it, it could really spoil the, the whole feature versus, you know, if you're working with something to draw attention or, or to indicate, um, you know, the progress, mm -hmm. uh, a, a really well-done animation can you know, really improve the overall usability of the app. I think about the Xbox as being a great example of using animation to indicate, you know, which thing is active or, you know, thing on the screen is is waiting for input. You know, maybe it's a button or maybe it's something that you need to press or a character you need to interact with. But, you know, on on the screen, it could be the same thing, you know, just a sort of a moving thing that, indicates, you know, this is where you need to draw your attention right now. And going back to delighters, you know, that could be a delighter as well if, if implemented well. Yeah, if you get that right, you're going to knock them out. Yeah, I guess that, that's, that's the whole trick, isn't it? Get it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have a, a, a wealth of examples of well-designed apps that you usually point people to to either get ideas or... Or in conversely, you know, not well-designed apps. I guess there's a plethora of those, but, you know. I suppose it's it's the sort of, sort of standards, right? We go to Amazon a lot and say, oh, you know, look how – and I don't even know if it's like UI elements so much as ideas. Like if we have an investment product that we want to highlight and there's research that supports using that investment product in your portfolio, mm. hey, wouldn't it be cool to show the two side by side? in the kind of way that Amazon does, if you bought this, you might also like mm. kind of thing. So there would be kind of an algorithm driving it. You know, we, we look at things like that. I don't know, Amber, if you 
have other examples. Do you want fries with that kind of? <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 like or the model of you know with our retirement plan participants, people like you tend to save this much. Mm. So I don't know if it's like so much like you know interfaces that we look at so much as like psychological principles. Got it. You know, like likeness, similarity, um, influence. Like we'll put, you know, uh, somebody that we feel like is pretty respected out there. They'll write a blog. We'll feature it. And it'll be like, oh, look at this authority on the matter, right? Sure. This is probably something I should listen to. And I would say with design elements and things like that, uh, since mobile is so new and Vanguard uh, has a lot of different departments, we actually are trying a lot of different things in different departments. So we will have kind of examples from our own sites on which scrolling table works better than which other scrolling table that we've used and, you know, which secondary navigation is better, accordion, drop-down, or uh, other types of secondary navigation. In what situations would you use um, which technique? Yeah, you know, like it's so it's hard to find like the wholesale example that's that is like they do everything well. Right. You know? So so now we're just more looking at, hey, look, this element seems to work well and maybe we could use it in this context. Sure. A lot of our competitive research has become fragmented, I suppose, in that in that regard. But in kind of an interesting way, you know? Hmm. Certainly sounds great what you're doing, and uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, it sounds awesome, and I, and I wish there were people like you around for every piece of software that I write. Not you know, and and I wish there were more standard things that we could. And I have learned that them this uh, this hour just talking to you, things that I could try to 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 sort of short circuit some of those problems that exist and i would say a lot of those problems can be dealt with up front but uh in an ongoing way as well thank you thank you yeah thanks for having us uh, it's been our pleasure and thank you for listening and we'll see you next week on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.